Richard Howard, who works out of the AWS London office, has interviewed a number of angel investors about the mistakes first-time founders should avoid, why CEOs should be open to mentorship, and more. Hi, my name is Richard Howard. I'm a startup business development manager at AWS. With me on the podcast today, we have Matt Clifford, CEO and co-founder of Entrepreneur First. Uh, Companies that have come out of Entrepreneur First you might have heard of, such as uh, Magic Pony, which was acquired by Twitter, uh, Bloomsbury AI and Scape, both acquired by Facebook, uh, CloudNC and Tractable, uh, still currently going very well, having raised uh, a a bunch of money. Uh, Matt, welcome and thank you for joining me. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Matt, for people who who aren't familiar with Entrepreneur First, could you give a little bit of a background on EF and yourself as well? Yeah, for sure. So Entrepreneur First is a talent investor. Uh, What is a talent investor? This is a new category of venture capital that we pioneered at Entrepreneur First with the thesis that the world's missing out on some of its best founders. So, you know, we're all used to hearing stories from from Silicon Valley in this industry. And Silicon Valley is actually really unusual. It's the one place in the world where starting a company is not only normal, but the most celebrated, prestigious, socially validated thing that you can do. Uh, But in most of the world, that's not true. In most of the world, starting a company is, is something quite weird, something that certainly your your parents and your you know, probably your partner doesn't want you to do. It seems risky and weird, and um, you know the, the the barriers to getting started are very high, just just from a social perspective. Uh, and that that leads to a sort of another problem, which is if that's true, then there are fewer people out there who might be great co-founders for you if you are one of the people that wants to start the business. In general, you can just say that the whole you know uh, success of Silicon Valley is built on network density around entrepreneurship, and that's just lacking everywhere else. So the job of a talent investor is to reconstruct those networks uh, in other parts of the world. So what we do at Entrepreneur First is we go out and we invest in people. That's why we call it talent investing. We invest in people before they have a company, uh, before they have a team, sometimes even before they have an idea, and we pay them to quit their jobs or not take a job and come and try out exploring ideas and teams. We put them in a cohort of, of typically 50 to 100 People like them, it's highly selective. And what we say is, you know, we're going to take you on a three-month journey of trying to find a co-founder from within this community, trying to find an idea that could be really huge, that's globally ambitious. And if at the end of that three months there's something there, we'll invest in the company that you create and then work with you really hard to try and find you um, a seed investor and, and sort of kickstart your entrepreneurial journey. And as you said in the introduction, we, we've been very fortunate and I think when we start doing this back in 2011 in London, people thought it was crazy and would never work. Uh, today, we've built over 200 companies through this model, uh, collectively worth over 200, um, sorry, over two billion dollars. And um, you know, it's starting to look like it's uh, actually a really great way to find exceptional people and help them become founders. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And and so you're not just in London anymore. You're, I think, it's six cities worldwide. That's right. So we're in London, Paris, Berlin, Singapore, Bangalore, and most recently Toronto. Okay, so normally I've you know I've done a bunch of podcasts with angel investors, and I would love to chat to you around kind of thesis of investing and 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 why you pick certain uh, companies and certain people. But uh, the thing that right now is kind of at the front of everybody's mind is kind of navigating their startup through crisis. And uh, the reason that I asked you to be to be on the show is because you wrote a great article for for Sifted about investors behaving badly. So you just recently had your European Demo Day. So that's cohorts from, from London, Berlin, and Paris. 
And you know, you mentioned that you've seen investors behaving badly, pulling term sheets, changing deal terms, and they need to think about their reputations in, in times like these. And, and reputations in bad times is, is really when your reputation is made. Yeah, so so I wanted to, to ask you around that. Like, what is the kind of behavior that you've been seeing from, like, obviously not everybody. There are some really good VCs, some really good investors out there. But what is the type, the type of behavior, some predatory behavior that you've been seeing by investors in this kind of uh, crisis? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right to, to put that caveat. The first thing I would say is overwhelming majority of investors, I think, are really demonstrating that they, you know, are in this for the long run and, and their behavior has been, been great. You know, we, we've actually, I think, closed... 10 rounds of funding for portfolio companies in March. You know, that, that I think is testament to the fact that most, uh, most investors do want to demonstrate that they're uh, here for the long run, that they're founder-friendly, that they're partnering with, with founders. I think the, the challenge is that, you know, there's, there's sort of a subtle difference between adjusting to economic reality, which I think is fine, and we can talk about what that might mean a, a little bit more, and then sort of, uh, I think, sort of unethical behavior which is obviously not fine. Now, the reality is that we're about to enter probably the hardest uh, period for startup fundraising for well over a decade. And of course, as a result of that, the amount of capital flowing into startups, at least in the short term, will fall. Valuations will fall. Um, that's just markets functioning. And you know, we you can't be a, a VC and not believe in markets. I think the bit that's challenging is when uh, commitments that have been made by investors are then rescinded or, or sort of altered very significantly. And we have seen that in, in every location that we operate, unfortunately, uh, at least at least once or twice. I think the reason this really matters is that, yes, markets need to adjust and, yes, um, prices come down. But, you know, I think this is an industry that's built on the idea of, of partnership and commitment. You know, you, you can't fire your investors um, and, you know, you're, you're signing up for often a 10-year journey with the people that you bring in. Now, clearly, you, you, you know, you're, uh, once someone has invested, their interests are very well aligned with you through their ownership in the company. But I think seeing how investors react to bad times, to difficult times, and seeing how they treat you in that period, you know, it's sort of a warning sign for what things are going to be like down the road if times get hard. And I think in particular, you know, the reason I think it can be quite egregious is that, of course, as, as most of your listeners will know, the structure of the venture industry means that once you get serious with an investor and it's pretty clear that you're going to go ahead with them, you, you know, you, you stop talking to other investors. You know, you, you, you sign up to exclusivity with an investor. And often that period after that can be quite long. Uh, you know, it takes time to get legal documents done. It takes time to, to sort of nail down all the details. Problem is, in that period, you're still spending money. Your cash uh, balance is getting lower and lower and lower as a founder. And you're cutting off other options. You stop talking to others. So the power dynamic that emerges towards the end of that process is pretty brutal. You know, the investor basically can call the shots. You know, they know, and this is true in good times as well. You know, if you, if you started raising money when you had a few months cash less left, you could well be getting down to a few weeks cash uh, left by the time a deal um, starts to close. And so the challenge is, if the, nor the reason we have such strong norms in the industry that people keep to the terms they agreed is, is partly, I think, because of that power dynamic. Otherwise, it'd be very easy to run down the clock and then demand better terms. And you know, obviously, no one wants that. We all want to be good actors in the ecosystem. So I think what we're seeing is people using the crisis uh, sometimes, you know, somewhat legitimately, things really have changed quite markedly, but sometimes as cover 
to actually try and extract better terms from 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 companies. And I think that's just an abuse of the or can be an abuse of the power dynamic that exists in the sector. No, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. I think and, and you mentioned it, you know, this is gonna be like a ten year journey. And if you start off on the kind of fit of I'm going to take advantage of you when I can uh, it's just it's just setting the precedent for for kind of a really bad relationship going forward. Right. I think you're right. You know, you mentioned adjusting to economic reality. I think that is you know we're, we're all capitalists, right? Right. That is why people are, are starting companies. So hey, the market has changed. You're now you're now worth less. So you know, hey, if I go out and raise a round, you might be even if you're early stage, you might be raising a down round. You might be able to get less capital in the door. That is just adjusting to market reality. But like you said, if you've someone's made a commitment then you really should be honoring that commitment. And it's one of those things that I say, you know, I'm lucky enough in this role to meet a bunch of founders, including a bunch of entrepreneur first founders. And when they're talking to investors, I always say to them is like, you have to do your due diligence of the investor. Uh, and that is not just talking to companies in their portfolio that are successful, but you have to talk to the companies in their portfolio who didn't make it because yeah. Every startup has hard times and you need to know how this investor is going to react to you when you miss a quarter or you miss sales for a half a year or the product isn't going as you want to do or you don't have product market fit or, or whatever is going on. You need to know that they're going to be able to help you or be supportive during that time as well as when everything is fine. And I think this just adds to that. One of the other asymmetries as well as the, you know, the kind of cash one is that it's pretty hard. And, you know, this is one of the debates that, you know, I found myself sort of dragged into after writing that piece. One response to that piece was, well, you know, it's all well and good, Matt, you, you're saying this, but unless you name names, founders are actually no better off because they don't know who to avoid. I sympathize with that to some extent, but, you know, let's say I'm talking about somewhere between five and 10 situations around the world when I, when I write something like that. The challenge is it's not actually in the founder's interest, the people that are directly working with those investors now, to have me, uh, you know, showing my mouth off about individuals because they still got to do that deal. As I said, often they're getting down to a few weeks cash. And so, you know, yeah. I think there is a tension in, in the industry in that, you know, sometimes people do behave in ways that, you know, we might not like, but it's, it's probably not my job to broadcast that because the founder has to work with them. And so I think there is a tension there. I, I see that people say, well, it's really hard to reference investors if people won't speak out. I think the challenge there is that, you know, it, it, we can, you know, we can play a role in, in helping our founders navigate these questions uh, at Entrepreneur First. But, you know, there are, there are reasons why it's very difficult for people to be fully public about these situations. And, you know, I think that's just a tension we have to acknowledge. Yeah, I, I think that's totally true. You know, I, uh, I've been lucky enough to be in startups since 2012, founded my company in 2014, and we went through Techstars the same year. And I've had a bunch of bad experiences with investors. I haven't gone public with them, but, you know, in my role right now, I have to work with hundreds of, not thousands of, of angel VC investors. I can't go out kind of like mouthing off at them. But if you wanted to know what I really thought, you can always ask me privately. With Entrepreneur First, do you guys maintain a list of investors who have, done these kind of things and you kind of tell your companies to avoid them? Well, I think we, you know, we, we also want to be fair to, um, to people in the, in the venture ecosystem in that, you know, like sometimes I think there's like cut and dried egregious behavior. Sometimes there's a lot of nuance and subtlety. And sometimes, you know, the way a founder sees it might not be, you know, fully objective. I, I think we're open-minded about that. So we, what we don't do is we don't have a database of every bad thing that every founder has said about a, sure. a VC. I think I think in some way, you know, I think there's ways to make that work. I think Y Combinator has more of a sort of wiki approach to, to this, which I think has you know I think served them 
Well, we don't do that. But what we do do, obviously, is maintain uh, a data set of every founder that different investors have worked with. So what we encourage, you know, one of the things I love about Entrepreneur First is it's a big community now. You know, even in the UK alone, there's probably close to a thousand people that have been through the program. And so what that means is for pretty much any investor in the ecosystem, we can point our founders to someone who's worked with them or got a term sheet with them and say, what was your experience? So, you know, I think what we think is that, you know, the best people to help founders navigate these things are other founders. They can speak candidly about their experiences. So what we absolutely do do is navigate people towards people who, you know, would have relevant experience. If you're an investor who is looking at investing in an entrepreneur first company, you should be aware of that. You'd like that that's obviously going to happen. And you have to think, in my mind at least, a little bit long term. As you mentioned kind of at the top, you guys ha- are um have invested in two hundred companies. The valuation uh, kind of collectively is over two billion dollars right now. And if I'm an investor and I want to have a good long term relationship with the companies that I invest in, but also an organization that is creating so many successful startups, then, you know, that means I should be thinking of like, what is best for the long term, not just can I take advantage of this situation for the next three or four months? What is going to be valuable to me as an investor, to my LPs? And in the long term, that is having a good open relationship with with Entrepreneur First, in, in my mind, at the very least. I think, you know, ho- hopefully that's true. And, you know, I, I like to think that one of the benefits that EF can provide to founders is that it is effectively like a trade union for entrepreneurs. You know, we can we can we can say things and do things uh, as a collective that it would be hard for an individual founder to do. But I think it's true even outside that you know very specific EF context, which is you know one thing that I've I've had this conversation with multiple investors over the last week who you know are doing things that maybe I don't want them to do. And obviously, you know, everyone's got different incentives and different challenges so i I try and be really empathetic and and open-minded but you know one thing that i've been saying to a lot of people is you know it's kind of hard for the price of one deal to make or break a fund you know it really is difficult if you think you know let's imagine a hypothetical you know 50 million dollar seed fund that's trying to do maybe 20 initial investments of a million dollars um you know if you're doing if you're sort of in this situation where one of your investments is closing, you know, in the heart of a crisis and you have the opportunity to let's, let's go extreme and say, you know, halve the price of that deal. You're basically doubling the return on $1 million out of $50 million in your fund. Yeah. So, you know, you're you're basically taking 2% and getting a two X leverage on that. So even if it's a 10 X deal, you know, it becomes a 20 X deal. But if it's your very, if it's a 10x deal, it's one of your better companies. Do you really want to be starting off the relationship with one of your better companies with a situation where you're halving the price? Probably not. Equally, if it's not one of the better companies, you're probably going to write it off anyway. So the idea that you would want to build a reputation for this kind of behavior around the price of one deal at this like highly unusual time, that seems to me just to be a bad trade off, even from a purely self-interested perspective. Yeah. And so I mentioned that you, you guys had your, your demo day last week for your companies from London, from, from Paris and Berlin. So that was kind of like right in the, the center of, of what's going on. Have you seen any difference in kind of the fundraising from, from those demo day companies versus what you might have seen in previous demo day companies? Well, I'll, I'll try and separate out two sort of slightly different questions. So one, I, I strongly believe, as, as I guess most investors do right now, that we're going to see a much slower seed market over the next 
minimum few months. I think most of the VCs I'm speaking to, they're saying they're open for business and they are, but their pace is probably going to slow sometimes by half or, or, or even more. So I imagine we'll see less capital go in, fewer deals, lower valuations, and that's certainly going to affect the companies graduating out of uh, EF's Europe 13 group. And you know we, we're talking to them about how to manage that situation. So that bit, I think, is just like, that's the environment that's baked in. It's, it's, it's unfortunate. Um, the bit that's, I think, very pleasing for us and the entrepreneurs is the actual experiment of doing a demo day all remote, which we you know never have done before coronavirus, that on its own terms has been a huge success. So you know, typically in London, uh, when because we, we do the Europe demo days in London, we would get four or 500 people turn up to those events, you know, people from all over the world, which is great. But last Thursday, when we when we did the online event, we had two thousand people uh, log in to to, wow. to look at the videos. So there's something quite interesting about that, about this inherent scalability of online. You know, we've we've been saying as VCs for ages, software is eating the world. Uh, but it's uh, obviously a Mark Andreessen phrase. But you know, one industry yeah. that it's not eaten very much at all is VC. So I'm kind of intrigued to see just how scalable that the online demo day is particularly because the feedback we've had so far from investors is on balance that they prefer it you know they miss the social element they miss seeing each other yeah and, and you know one great thing about ef demo day is you know almost everyone does show up so you get to see all, all your investor friends but you know i think people like being able to hone in on the companies that they uh, really are interested in not have to sit through the ones that are off thesis for them they like that the style can be a little bit more in depth and authentic and it's very different from you know a three-minute pitch on stage so you know I, I think we're we're really intrigued by the potential of of online demo day i mean as it probably goes without saying we had to do this on very short notice you know even even a month ago i suppose this shows the the power of exponential growth uh, this time on yeah. the virus side you know, a month ago, we didn't think we were going to have to cancel it. But now we're wondering actually whether if, you know, with a bit of a head start and a heads up, whether we could make online demo day next time, even if we could do it in person, way more effective and powerful than than the um, sort of in-person real life equivalent would be. But the way that EF cycles through companies is, is, is basically it's a six-month program. Um, the first three months is kind of when the founders come in and they meet each other. And so you're now, I guess, into the next phase, right? You've done demo day last week and have the next cohort started? Uh, they start on Monday. Start on Monday. Okay. We typically, have one rest week uh, in between in between programs. So you get you get two rest weeks a year. Two whole rest weeks a year. Oh my God! You guys are slacking. I know. I know. I'm trying to you know <laughs> I was trying to encourage the GMs to pull pull the new cohorts forward, but um, no, they didn't bite. <laughs> so I'm assuming that the people that are part of the like the cohort that's coming next week were chosen before the kind of crisis impacted that, that's absolutely right but do you foresee kind of going forward this crisis and, and whatever it shakes out in, like impacting the way that you choose uh, the talent or really not going to have an impact or really the way that you choose kind of are you going to go more uh, kind of healthcare life science you've seen the the market growth and the potential there or is it not really going to change it that much or you're not sure yet well i i think the, the longer term impact of of the crisis is we're still developing a view on. We don't think it will affect the composition of the cohort by sector, but I think there are definitely some immediate you know, things that we are seeing. Um, so one is just the extraordinary resilience of entrepreneurs. You know, I'll be totally honest. I was really worried far more about the next cohort starting than I was about demo day. You know, I thought ultimately we, okay. we can figure out how to do online office hours, but you know, are any of these 200 people across Europe that we've made offers to, actually going to show up 
in, in the midst of the you know, biggest public health crisis for a generation. Anyway, it turns out that I underestimated uh, entrepreneurs. Uh, I think of the 200 <laughs> people, I think we've had like maybe five have, have issues, and most of those are they're literally locked down in a country that they're not allowed to leave. You know, in general, we've not seen any pullback in, in sort of interest from entrepreneurs, which is really encouraging. I think we're having to change our, our methods. So obviously, we're having to do everything online that we used to do offline. And that's making us think about different groups that we may not normally target that, that we are doing now. So, you know, one thing I'm really interested in is whether we can sort of play a role in being a, a, a channel for people who have lost their jobs in, in this crisis. So, you know, there are going to be a huge number of people in, in tech startups who are losing their job through no fault of their own. You know, my guess is that most VC-backed companies are going to have to make pretty significant cuts, yeah. which is really difficult. So, you know, we, we're going to do our best to try and, you know, kind of invite those people to think about entrepreneur first. You know, our strong belief is that great companies are built in, in, in hard times. And, you know, I think if you, uh, if you're someone who was working in startups and, you know, this crisis has, has sort of meant that, you know, that job doesn't exist anymore, actually now might be a really great time to, uh, try and start a company within a support network like EF that can provide both financial and community backup through that. So that's one thing. And the second thing is just thinking about, you know, what what is suddenly urgent that wasn't urgent before? Um, you know, we're very yeah. struck by, you know, I'm sure that for the vast majority of companies, sales are going to fall right now, obviously. You know, it's going to be probably the worst recession for a generation. I think there are some parts of the economy, though, that are going to, um, or rather some kinds of services they're going to suddenly feel extremely urgent relative to three months ago. You know, the, one of our companies is, is having, you know, an incredible run through this crisis. That's Acurix, which is a UK company that provides communication software and remote care software to the National Health Service in the UK. Suddenly, digital transformation, which was, uh, you know, rhetorically close to the top of everyone's priority list in the NHS for a long time, but tended to be extremely slow. Suddenly, it's actually top of um, everyone's priority list. And, you know, they've grown um, almost 2x in the last month. Wow. And so, you know, my guess is we're seeing that right now in healthcare, but we're going to see it across big swathes of the economy. You know, like, even when the lockdowns end, you know, like anything that requires sort of physical interactions, supply chains to be up and running, these are going to be under a lot of strain for a long time. So we're very intrigued by the possibilities to build software services that transform uh, offline businesses into online businesses. And that's going to be a big growth area even through the crisis. Yeah, for for sure. And and you mentioned there, you know, these people that have, um, through no fault of their own, been made um, redundant or, or let go by a bunch of startups or even, you know, non-startups. A lot of companies, startup or not, are going to have to let um, people go when the world or when the world of investors is kind of in fear mode rather than than in greed mode do you think there's a i mean even in good times there's a value in having kind of the ef sticker of quality but when particularly we're or the investors are in, are in fear mode do you think there's even more value in having that kind of quality sticker that kind of access to the pool of investors that you guys have as well as the alumni that you guys have to help people through these times well, obviously, I'm biased, but I think the answer is yes. Um, I mean, I, I think the way I would um, the, the way I would sort of um, flesh that out is I would say what's really helpful now is to have people. If you're a founder, I mean, is to have people on your side who can 
have candid conversations with future investors about about the quality of your company. So, you know, one one challenge is that all the VCs, their bar is going to be even higher than normal for making new investments. And I think if you combine a high bar with the fact that everything's happening through video chats and it's harder to get a read, having someone that they trust that they're, you know, they've worked with many times before and they'll work with many times again in the future, who they can call and say, tell me about this company, that just becomes massively valuable. Yeah. You know, we always help our companies raise. You know, I think that's going to be extraordinarily useful in the current environment for founders. But also, you know, I mean, I think we're lucky to, you know, we obviously have capital ourselves and, you know, we have LPs who uh, get what we're doing and, and, you know, understand the model and understand what it takes to make these companies succeed. So, you know, we're also looking at uh, ways that we can use our own capital to make sure, you know, that, that, that strong companies survive this period and, you know, and don't fail simply because of, short-term financing risk so yeah i think it's a great time to have a support network and you know we, we hope that entrepreneur first is one of the best support networks for founders out there so for for any founders that are listening that aren't you know entrepreneur first founders what advice are you giving to your portfolio companies of kind of managing through this whether they have whether they're you know brand new just had demo day or whether they're you know a couple of demo days past what is the kind of i guess the entrepreneur first advice to kind of managing through this time yeah, so I think the first thing we'd say is, you know, it, it really is very, very serious. You know, I think there are opinions differ on just how uh, bad the current crisis is. We're firmly in the um, it's extremely serious camp. Yeah, you know, we think it for startups, it's going to be a brutal, brutal period, and I think it's really important that investors and advisors don't sugarcoat that. You know, I think even very good companies, unless they happen to be in one of the areas that there's actually increased demand, most companies are going to miss all their sales targets. Uh, they're not going to grow as fast as they want. Venture capital is not going to be there in the same level of abundance that it was. So, you know, I think people should really prepare for hard, hard times. One of our investors and board members is Reid Hoffman, the founder of LinkedIn and partner at Greylock. And you know, he has this great framework that, that we use a lot which is, you know, you need a plan A, a plan B, and a plan Z. Um, that's advice that I'm giving to our whole portfolio right now. You know, you do need the plan A. Some companies are going to be yeah. able to continue to raise and thrive in this environment. They're unfortunately going to be the minority, but you need a plan for how you do thrive and, you know, what that looks like, how you continue to grow. But you're going to need a plan B, which is the sort of steady the ship plan, which is get through 12 to 18 months, don't damage the company, you know, maintain your customer relationships, maintain as much of, as you can of, of the team and the you know pro, uh, progress on product. But you do need a plan Z. And I think anyone without a plan Z right now is going to suffer. And plan Z is do literally whatever it takes to save the company and keep it alive. And for some companies, that's going to mean really brutal cuts to team, uh, to other kinds of spend, to, to growth plans. And no one likes to think about plan Z because it's it's so um, it's so painful just in the human sense, but every company needs one, and I think in particular I would say investors who would support a plan A or a plan B strategy are less likely to support it if there isn't a plan Z. You know, investors right now want to know that there is a path through this period for the company, even if it's deeply unpleasant. So I, I would say you know you need a plan for how you get by without revenue for eighteen months from now, come what may. And um, I'm, I'm advising all our companies to have that plan and, and really spend time thinking about what it means. I think the positive here, if, if there is one, is that 
this kind of thinking has been out of fashion for a long time because capital has been abundant. And as a result, founders have often not had to make difficult decisions that perhaps they should have done. This is a moment where it's actually easier to make difficult decisions. And, um, you know, I, I think what is a positive here is every founder is having to go back to to basics on how do we actually provide something valuable for customers here? What's the absolute minimum we have to do to be able to continue to provide that value and, and survive and, and succeed? And I think if you're if you're willing and able to have that conversation and make those tough decisions, I think there's every opportunity to come through this and, and build a fantastic company. Yeah, no, I, I think that's true. I think um, so. The the blog post that I share with with all the founders that that are in my network is the Paul Graham one, which is what is just just avoid dying. Yeah, you know the the outcomes of, of startups are, are typically um, binary, and this is what it kind of covers. Well, you either die or you become rich, and if you can <laughs> avoid dying, you know your chances of becoming rich are, are pretty pretty high. So yeah. just do whatever steps you take to to avoid dying. I have um, a company that you know I was lucky enough to invest in. They're going. They happen to be in the the travel and like leisure business right now, which you know could not be a worse vertical to be in. And they had £180,000 in investment on the table and it was pulled last week. So they are, you know, they're in, in kind of dire straits. And I, I spoke to the founder last night and he laid out literally plans all the way through to Z. This is, you know, they've, they've already put, put the employees on furlough, unfortunately. They've created the, the product to basically be self-service. Um, and he's like, the worst comes to the worst. The product will live. The company will live. We can go and get consulting jobs to ride this out until, you know, there's going to be, I think one of the things that's going to happen, yes, there'll be a recession, but I think one of the things that will rebound is kind of activities and leisure because people haven't been able to do that whilst they've been on lockdown. And you're talking to him, he's in he's in the worst possible position he could be in, but he has the plans to do it and he he refuses to die. And that's the kind of grit that you, you want to kind of see in founders. 100%. 100%. Last question for you. For founders who aren't aren't part of EF and who are, unfortunately, they're, they're at that stage right now where they're like, oh, you know, oh shit! I was gonna, I was gonna raise money. You know, they're making, maybe they're making their debt look really nice in January. Start to send out to a few friendly VCs at the beginning of February. Do you have any advice for for those kind of founders who are trying to look the most attractive to investors right now? Maybe it's their first raise, maybe second raise, but they are trying to raise money like kind of through this. Yeah, I think, I think, yeah. As I said, I mean, first thing, get realistic about what you're asking for. I, th- I think times have have moved on as, as we've covered at a length. So, you know, that would be my first thing. And the second thing is to say. You know, everyone needs a coronavirus narrative. Obviously, we're not all building coronavirus testing companies, nor should we be. But I think you just need to. It's the elephant in the room in every conversation. I think you you need to you know, have a slide towards the start of your deck that lays out how you think you fare in this climate, and how you fare in you know a number of scenarios that are possible. But I think you also need to think beyond the crisis. You know, as we as we touched on earlier in the conversation. In many cases, if you succeed, this is a 10-year journey. You know, this crisis is going to end. Um, it may change the world in some important ways, but it's going to end. So what does the world look like afterwards, and what does your company look like in that world? I think that's incredibly important, and, you know, I, I think that needs to be very clearly demonstrated in the deck. So, you know, I think just baking in the realities of the new situation to your plans, but showing how you still come out of it stronger, I think that's, that's going to be absolutely key. No, for sure. How can people who are listening to this find you and, and, and kind of uh, find more about you? As the, as the kids say, as I'm told, what are your socials? So um, I'm, I'm on Twitter, at Matthew Clifford. I'm pretty responsive on there. That's the easiest way to, to, to find me. I'm also uh, um, on LinkedIn. 
I write a weekly newsletter largely about non-startup stuff. Um, always happy to engage with people on that as well by email. Uh, you can find that uh, on my Twitter account. Okay, awesome. And you're not doing any kind of TikTok dances. That's not, you're not kind of going into quarantine craziness yet. Not right now. Matt Clifford, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening. Do us a favor and leave us a review. And if you know someone who we should have on the show, or maybe it's you, reach out to us at startupstories at amazon.com. And subscribe to AWS Startup Stories wherever you get your podcasts.